Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Before today's episode, we want to remind you to not miss the all-new HBO Max original comedy series, That Damn Michael Che, starring none other than Michael Che. Featuring celebrity guests Omari Hardwick, Cecily Strong, Colin Jost, Billy Porter, and Method Man, among others, including one of Liz's friends from high school, which is super fun. That Damn Michael Che explores Michael's perspective on everyday situations, including racial profiling, unemployment, falling in love, and more. Stream That Damn Michael Che now on HBO Max. Before today's episode, we want to thank a couple of our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate everyone who has gone to patreon.com slash sartorialgeek. The funding that we receive from Patreon does basically everything at the Sartorial Geek from keeping this podcast running to paying to host our website. And we appreciate everyone who has supported us over there. This week, we want to thank Colleen, Mariah, Camilla, Chelsea, Katie, and Samantha. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. If you want to join them, you can head to patreon.com slash sartorialgeek to check out our rewards. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. Hey, welcome to the Sartorial Geek Podcast. I'm Jordan today, and I'm so excited to be back with Erica Schultz. Hello, how are you? Hello. It is great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're talking about your new Kickstarter, which is May 11th, Yes, right, is when it's coming out. Um, I think this episode will be out before then, so everyone go follow Erica on Kickstarter. Well, is it going to be through your name on Kickstarter? Uh, yeah, it will be through my name on Kickstarter, but it'll also, we have uh, deadly underscore bouquet is the Twitter and the deadliest bouquet comic is our Instagram. That's so like ahead that you have all that stuff already. That's so great. It's all because the editor, James Emmett, I cannot say enough about how incredible James is. James is like, one part editor, two parts therapist, Listen. three parts, like <laughs> three parts, like, you know, social media God. He's fantastic and fabulous. I worked in advertising for almost 10 years and I don't even have like the same like marketing brain that he has. It's all the like synergy and everything that is all him. He is the brainchild behind this, basically, like the whole like marketing part of it. That's awesome. That's you need people like that. Pretty much. With yeah. a Kickstarter, especially because <laughs> everyone's wearing a zillion hats. Let me do a good job. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> this is for <laughs> volume one of a graphic novel that you are writing called The Deadliest Bouquet. Yes. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the team and then we'll do a teaser of like what the story is. Okay. Well, the team is Carola Borelli is the line artist. Gab Contreras is the colorist. I'm writing and lettering and James Emmett is our editor and Kevin Wada. We got to do the cover. So I'm so excited about that. Oh my God. I love Kevin's work. It's so cool. When you sent the email, I was like, oh my gosh, are you serious? That's so great. First of all, I was so nervous just reaching out to Kevin because like, I'm a huge fan of his work and I'm like, I don't know if this is something that's going to interest him. And I don't know if like he has time because he's like so in demand. And when he emailed me back, he's like, oh, this sounds really great. I was like, really? Oh my God. <laughs> like I was so like blown away that he was just like, oh yeah, this sounds really great. Yeah, let's do this. I was like, oh. 
That's yeah. so awesome. Can we tease the cover in the show notes? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, cool. I told him the aesthetic was clueless meets singles meets law and order. <laughs> Which also, that's a perfect lead into what the story is, because like, if that doesn't get you, <laughs> then, like that, that's right up my alley. I got to read the first issue and it is everything that I want in a comic. So I'm so excited. Yeah. I mean, like I'm going back to sort of my crime writing roots, but this is taking place in 1998, which I was junior going into my senior year in college in 98. And I love the aesthetic of the 90s. And I still wear like my Doc Martens and flannel and, you know, t-shirts and my black jeans with the holes in the knees. Like I really did not leave the 90s at all. And I probably never will. (laughs) No, Um, no reason to. So like, I really love the sort of vibe in general. And also there was like in 98, 99, there was like this real weird sort of like paranoia about Y2K, but it wasn't, hadn't taken over just yet. So there was this like enthusiasm of like what the new millennium was going to be like, but then like this also kind of like wariness about like, well, what's that going to mean for the world kind of thing. So it has kind of not like an eerie vibe, but it, it kind of does like everybody's a bit on edge for obvious reasons, because, you know, they're trying to solve a murder, but everybody's still a little bit on edge because they don't know like when the clock strikes midnight for 2000 what that's going to mean that's so crazy because I obviously remember that now that you bring it up but I fully forgot about Y2K like yeah there's been so many other crazy things since then I forgot how wild that was well that's the thing I mean like so much has happened since Y2K I mean, pandemic aside, right? you know, 9-11 and everything else. But like Y2K at the moment was huge because it wasn't just a US thing. Like it was like a worldwide thing, like people freaking out about what was going to happen. And I remember I was at a party and I'll just say it, I got very drunk and I was like eating an entire box of Cheez-Its, which, you know, is never good. And I just remember being like, is the world going to end as I'm like shoveling handfuls of Cheez-Its in my mouth? Which is such a different reason than we've been wondering if the world is going to end in 2020, but still like a little too close to home to remember that. Exactly. And like, that's like the weird thing is like, you know, people told, and it's funny because there are people that are, you know, this year they're going to be drinking, you know, old enough to drink and have no recollection of Y2K. And it's just, it's bizarre to me, but yeah. Oh, totally. Because we're 2021. That's weird. Oh my gosh. Is it crazy to put yourself back in that time period in the sense of like technology is different and like we didn't have iPhones and stuff. Like, is that, is it hard to think back to like, you know, what we had access to and what life was like back then? Not really. I mean, I'm going to be 44 in about a month and a half and I'm young enough to remember, but like, I'm old enough to be like, oh, wow. Like I do remember eight track tapes, (laughs) but you know, there's one thing that I've noticed a lot with Sometimes I think technology can actually hinder a story because we have so much access to everything in our pockets, literally. I think it's setting it back in the 90s gives me a little more leeway in terms of telling the story, letting the story breathe, because you're not getting your DNA results back like in 15 minutes. You know, you're not like, you can't just pick up your phone and call. And one of the characters, one of the sisters, Poppy, she has a cell phone, but it's like one of those like old brick phones. And it was back in the day when you had to 
count your minutes basically. Oh my gosh. You know? And they I were so expensive. Will never forget that. You know, and like you <laughs> had to like worst. wait until like nine o'clock at night where it was like free minutes and all this other stuff. So it's like she has this physical piece of technology and she never uses it. And it really is like taking the story back then, I think helps the story along because it, it makes sort of some of the things that if you set the story in 2021, people would be like, that's totally implausible. And it's like, no, but back then, you know, investigations took months, not days, not weeks, months. Yeah. And we didn't have all the like, I'm this person. We didn't have all of the like true crime podcasts and like entire exactly. networks full of where everyone, you know, thinks they're an at-home detective, <laughs> which may, I don't know, maybe we are, who knows. But like, I feel like there wasn't as much like, oh my God, this is just how every case goes. Like I listen exactly. to that all the time. And there is a huge amount of like armchair online detectives. You know, there's like message boards for these people to like go and to chat with each other and to compare notes and stuff. You didn't have that. You didn't have you know, your 24-hour news cycle where a murder can happen in Nowheresville, you know, pick a state and everyone in the world can learn about it. You didn't have social media. Like this is before even like Friendster and MySpace. You didn't have those. You didn't have social media. Like the biggest thing that you had was like a Netscape website and an email address. Like if you even had an email address, like that was like the biggest thing. That's so crazy to think about. <laughs> I really wanted to get back to this sort of like, I'm not going to say like the halcyon days of yore, but you know, like back to when technology, we weren't so obsessed with technology and it wasn't, it didn't have such a hold on us. And I think that it gives me more room to tell a story that is plot focused, but also has a lot of character development. I mean, this story is basically about like the log line is, you know, three estranged sisters trained by their Nazi hunting mom come together to solve their mom's murder and try not to kill each other in the process. Like that's your log line. Which is like, I mean, come on, that's everything <laughs> I want. <laughs> Do you know, like, I hate writing log lines. I am like the worst at it. And for whatever reason, I'm like, this is a really good log line. I will never write another good log line in my entire life. <laughs> because <laughs> this one came easily. Yeah. So like, if that doesn't hook you, I, I can't help you. <laughs> that's, that's great. When the story originally came to me, it was going to be three story arcs. So it was going to be 15 issues total. Because this family is basically like three generations of assassins of trained espionage assassins so i was going to do like the first generation which took place during world war ii when they were part of the french resistance and then like the second generation which was the mother who gets killed in this issue and how she grew up sort of post world war ii and traveling all over the world sort of hunting down these nazi sympathizers and people who escaped before uh the war ended and then this third story arc of jasmine's death and the three daughters and them coming together to solve the murder and stuff so i have so much written that if this does well, which I really do hope it does, I'm hoping to go back and possibly work on the other two story arcs to be able to really flesh out like this entire family and, you know, what happened and how, you know, you get to like the crazy three sisters, but you can see that it's like, you know, family trauma, literally generation after generation. That's so cool. 
I really, really hope you get to go back and do that because like, I always think it's really impressive when writers have, you know, all of these backstory and all of these notes, but it's even cooler when like the readers get to see them too. So it's cool that you have that, but I hope we get to read them. That would be so great. I would love to. And for this particular story, I mean, because I had so much, there was a lot of false starts. And so I would like start the story from one angle and then start it from another. And it really didn't take start taking shape until I got James involved. And James Emmett, like I said, is like one part editor, two part therapist, like three part awesome. And he really, what I said was, I was like, look, I need to hire you as an editor and you're going to want to murder me because I'm going to send you a Dropbox file filled with like ridiculous amounts of Word documents. And he was like, give me a couple weeks. And he just went through and read my Word salad, Word docs, and he found the through line. And he said, look, if you're only able to tell this story in one story arc, this is what you have to do. This is where it has to go. And I was like, you are the best because my brain was getting so cluttered with these different story arcs that everything was sort of bleeding into the next. I was like, I was in muddy water. I really couldn't see like the clear path, but he cleared that all away. And I was just like, oh my God, now I know. And it really, it helped open the story up a lot. That's so great too. And I know like, I feel like this is becoming like a common thing that writers are talking about, but editors are your friend. <laughs> and Like a good editor is amazing. And even though, you know, they are taking your ideas and usually that means you have to cut things or leave things out. It's because they're helping you write like a clear story, which is, I'm so glad you have such a good one. <laughs> it's so great. That's the thing. I mean, like nobody wants to be told that they have to change their story. Like I get that. And I'm an editor myself. I'm, I'm an editor with Mad Cave and I do some indie editing. So I get that. Nobody wants to hear that they want to change their story. But the idea in my mind, the idea is always about the story, the story, the work, the product that is paramount. So ego throw it away because the team wants to make the best piece, to, like the best piece of art, the best piece of creative possible. If somebody gets stuck on a stupid dialogue line or no, we have to show this or that, all you're doing is really bogging it down and everybody has to be on the same page. And basically that same page is let's make the best, most kick-ass piece of creative art that we can. and. Between Corolla and Gab, I hit the jackpot on this creative team. I really, really did because they have just kicked serious ass. And with Kevin Wada doing the cover and part of the Kickstarter, we have Elaine Grace doing this incredible print. So yeah, I mean, we really have put together like top, top, top notch team. That's so awesome. Have you, that just made me think of this, we're recording a little early to when your Kickstarter comes out. So I don't know if you have all this planned, but do you have like some rewards that you can tease of what kinds of stuff people will be able to get? Absolutely. Oh, cool. So you can get digital copies of the Deadliest Bouquet of the trade paperback. You could also get digital copies of some of the other books that I've worked on. You can get print copies, obviously. We have the print from Elaine Grace. We have this fabulous journal with the Kevin Wada cover on it. Oh, cool. We've got temporary tattoos. One of the interesting things, it's funny, a podcaster named Kelly Frazier brought this up the other day. I have this thing with tattoos, which I have many. I have this thing with this idea of like, when you have a tattoo, you sort of remember where you were when you got it. It's like when your parents would like mark your height on the wall. It's a specific point in time. And... These three sisters, like there's a lot of resentment between each other 
And one of the sort of acrimonious of them is the youngest named Violet. And as much as Violet goes to, you know, head to head with her two sisters, she still has this tattoo on her arm of a violet, a poppy, and a rose, you know, signifying her and her two sisters. So, you know, as much as she might be like, screw you, you know, whatever, you can't tell me what to do. She still felt enough to commemorate her sisters with her always. So we have like a temp tattoo of that and we've got some great pins and just all kinds of stuff. And we also have, you know, if you pledge at a certain level, you can actually get drawn in the book. If you pledge at another level, you can get a script review. If you going through it like right now as I'm like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. (laughs) Oh, these are great rewards though. Like that is... (laughs) That's a really awesome list of stuff. And I think it's also really cool when Kickstarters like let you have this little behind the scenes, like the fact that you have, you know, script reviews and stuff. That's the kind of thing you could never get access to. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people that really want to like see the process, you know, see behind the curtain and making comics is tough. And I'm the first person to admit that it's not magic. But it's, there's a lot of moving parts. And when I first started, I didn't even know the questions to ask. I think that's a lot of things. That's a lot of what sort of mystifies people about comics. They don't know what to ask. So you pledge at a certain reward. I'll go through your script with you. I will tell you what you need to do. I will tell you where your story can go. I will tell you, look, make sure that when you find an artist, it's not just any old artist that you like on Instagram. You know, one of the important things about comics and one thing that's really unique to comics is because it is such a collaborative process, I've seen really great stories with really good artists, but it's not a good artist for that story. And I think that happens a lot. And it's nothing against the artist or the writer. It's just, wow, I really like this artist. I want to work with them. As opposed to thinking, I really like this artist, but they're not right. Their style, their color choices, whatever, isn't right for this particular story. That's so amazing. That's an important thing I think a lot of people don't think about. Whereas I had seen Corolla's work with Destiny New York. I had checked out some of the stuff that she had done with Wave Blue World. And I said, okay, she's got a specific style that would work very well for this. You know, let me see if she's available. And she was, thank God. And Gab, I mean, Gab Contreras is fantastic. And, you know, she's worked on so much stuff like True Cult. And she's worked on a bunch of stuff for uh, Image and, and just really just a fabulous, fabulous colorist. So I'm really glad to have Gab attached to this as well. That's so awesome. And I hope like, yeah, if anyone listening is like an aspiring comics writer and they don't know where to start, like that type of having access to you in that way is really cool. So I feel like uh, there are rewards for everyone with this Kickstarter, which is awesome. And, you know, another thing that we have is like, we have kind of like a grab bag where if you pledge, it won't just be like the deadliest bouquet, but you would get like a couple issues of some of my other work. So like something like Charmed or something like uh, Xena or M3 or, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And it could be pretty much anything, but, you know, just to show that I do different things and to maybe sort of pique your interest in something else that I've worked on. That's so awesome. That actually reminds me when you said this is getting you back to crime writing. What is that? I have so many questions about that. Okay. So the first comic that I ever put out was M3. And when I put M3 out, it was like, oh, well, Erica's the person who writes crime fiction. 
I was like, you know, poor man's Ed Brubaker kind of thing, <laughs> which I'm totally fine with because I'm a huge fan of Ed Brubaker's work. But then the work that I started getting, a lot of it was, you know, the work for hire work was, oh, we need to write a crime story about a strong female character. Let's get so her to write it. <laughs> I was kind of, I guess, typecast is the wrong word, but I was kind of typecast with that. Um, and I think that I really broke out of that with 12 Devils Dancing, which was a crime story, but it was also horror. And I broke out of it even more when I did Forgotten Home last year, because that was, you know, YA urban fantasy. And it was like, wait, what? You write YA urban fantasy now? Like, when did that happen? (laughs) Imagine that. You can write all kinds of things. Exactly. Right. You can write all kinds of things. So yeah, so I'm sort of going back to my roots to, you know, there's no magic in this. It's kind of like charmed meets knives out, but even sexier, no offense, Chris Evans. I mean, sexier knives out is great. So <laughs> I mean, the language, it is adult language. There are some adult situations. Well, it's also a murder story. So I hope everyone would get from that, that it's not like for kids, but that is a good thing to put out there just in case. Yes, it is not for children. There is a lot of bad language and we have a very unapologetic pansexual who is just will flirt with anything on two legs, four legs, any legs. That is awesome. Yeah, you definitely get a taste of the personalities of the sisters in the first issue. And I can see how their dynamic is like very real to sister dynamic, but I'm excited to see like how it plays out because they're not just like chill best friends <laughs> from the get. No. Well, I'm one of three. Three is hard. Like three is a hard number of siblings to have. I don't, are you one of two, one of three? I was one of three. And then I had like a surprise sister 14 years later. But so I remember there being three of us as kids and it was not always great. So, you know, there's this round robin of Mm -hmm. like alliances, Mm -hmm. you know, and what it really comes down to is survival. You know, like, who are you going to bet on is the sibling that's going to win this argument? That's where you're (laughs) going to go. And it's not three sisters. In my case, I have an older brother and an older sister, but it was, you know, like Christopher and I ganging up on Karen, Karen and I ganging up on Christopher, Karen and Christopher ganging up on me. Like It was this constant round robin. At the age that I'm at now, you know, my brother's going to be 50 next year. You know, we can laugh about it. But when you're there, when you're in it, it's not a laughing matter. Like this is like heartbreaking, you know, like this, like the sibling rivalry and the back and forth is, you know, it's real. It really is. And I think that there's a scene in that first issue where one sister hugs the other. And then within literally the next panel, she's admonishing her for something, you know, and it's like, that is how fast this will turn on a dime. That's just real. And I kind of feel bad for people who are only children because they don't know this dynamic unless they've had like close cousins or close friends or whatever. Like they don't know this dynamic that it really is this sort of round robin of like, I hate you, but wait, are you going to win this argument? Are you going to cover for me so mom doesn't know what I did? Okay, then I'm on your side. And also like, There are situations where emotions are running, you know, much higher than they normally would be. And a family murder has got to be at the top of the list of like, everyone's a little extra touchy in that moment. 
Yeah. And it's this idea of like, you know, everybody was trying to live their own life. One of the biggest contentious issues for the sisters is that Rose stayed behind to help Jasmine run the flower shop. Whereas Poppy, you know, ran off to California, got married, had kids, like tried to live her own life and like create her own family. You know, Violet just decided I'm just going to travel the world and, you know, be a model and, you know, maybe kill some people on the side if I want, you know, for a little (laughs) extra cash kind of thing. And, you know, Rose sort of resents the bravery of the two of them to do that. At the same time, she's proud of them, but she resents it because she feels that if she decided to do that, it would never work. And the same thing with Poppy, like Poppy went out, has a husband, has kids, doesn't want anything to do with the craziness and dysfunction of her family. And then this happens, she gets sucked right back in. You know, she gets brought back into the fold and it's old bullshit. But it's just like all these old fights that never got resolved and just constant, like, I keep saying resentment, but that's really what it is. It's these old fights that that nobody ever really sat down with a therapist and worked out that I probably should have. If that's not the truest family dynamic (laughs) that there is, like, that's so honest. And they had resentment toward their mom, too. Yeah, it's a lot of sort of family craziness, but I think it's actually pretty damn real in general, just because like you see how something like this can really drive a wedge between them, but at the same time, bring them closer. I'm so excited for this Kickstarter. I hope we've teased it in a way that makes everyone listening want to get in on it. I like literally from the first page, I was like, yep, (laughs) this is a story that I want to read to the end. So I am so excited that you're doing this. And uh, it's May 11th, 2021. Yes, we didn't want to do it um, May 4th because we would, May the 4th be with you. So I was like... I was going to say, every Star Wars, everything is happening on May 4th. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Can you remind everyone what the social handles are for... For Twitter, it is deadly underscore bouquet. For Instagram, it is the deadliest bouquet comic. And you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm Erica Schultz 42 and I will be tweeting and retweeting and all the fun like 90s patterns that I've been like turning into gifts lately and all that fun stuff. I've gotten to really just do fun random designs, which has been nice and sort of relaxing and freeing for me because it allows me to just sort of like turn my brain off and just okay, what's going to look good? Okay, cool. And like do some really cool design elements because I haven't really gotten a chance to like design anything in a really long time. So I thought that that was fun. That's so awesome. I'm so excited. I hope this Kickstarter is so successful that you get to do all the other stories. I hope so too. I would really love to. I think that we'd have a really fun backdrop because it wouldn't just be this crazy family dynamic in New Jersey. It would be this crazy family dynamic in the 1950s and 60s in Europe, this crazy family dynamic against the backdrop of World War II. I think the the world that it lives in really helps create this like tension and really sort of ups the stakes. I want to read that. So I hope it happens. (laughs) It's so awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Erica. And please, everyone follow Erica for like, I mean, just you are writing things all the time. So you should follow this particular Kickstarter, but also everyone should follow you just to get all your other stories in the future. And thank you so much for taking the time to have me on. Um, I always love listening to the podcast because you're always so genuinely enthusiastic about stuff. And I'm like, yay. 
<laughs> Listen, this is like comics meets true crime meets sister rivalry. Like this is the most up my alley it could possibly be. So I honestly can't wait. And I'm so excited to see your Kickstarter May 11th. Thank you. The Emmy-nominated HBO original series, A Black Lady Sketch Show, is back. Don't miss all new episodes of the hilarious sketch comedy series featuring creator Robin Thede, Ashley Nicole Black, Gabrielle Dennis, Lacey Mosley, Sky Townsend, and tons of celebrity guests. And to celebrate, we're giving away Eden Body Works gift cards over on Instagram at Sartorial Geek. Watch A Black Lady Sketch Show Fridays at 11 p.m. on HBO and streaming on HBO Max.